Galatians 3, the verses 10 through 14. This is the word of God. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. We now turn to Lord's Day 24, which will give us focus and direction this afternoon as we consider the function of our good works. But why can our good works not be our righteousness before God, or at least a part of it? Because the righteousness which can stand before God's judgment must be absolutely perfect and in complete agreement with the law of God, whereas even our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. But do our good works earn nothing, even though God promises to reward them in this life and the next? This reward is not earned, it is a gift of grace. Does this teaching not make people careless and wicked? No. It is impossible that those grafted into Christ by true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when I was a child, our family visited my grandparents in Canada for a week or so. They were living in a neighborhood with a lot of maple trees. One glorious autumn morning, I decided I wanted to earn some money. The thing about autumn in Canada is that the leaves, the Trees lose their leaves, and these end up in people's yards. And so I saw that their neighbor had a lot of leaves in his yard. So I rung the doorbell with a few younger siblings in tow, and I asked the neighbor if he wanted me to rake his leaves. How much, he asked. I don't know, I said. I'll see how you guys do and decide what to pay you afterwards, he said. I was pretty excited at the prospect of actually earning real money, so we set to work and soon had a few piles raked together. The neighbor came out. Very good, he said. I like seeing kids working hard. I think you deserve a fair rate. So he gave us a handful of coins with some bills thrown in. 
All things considered, it was rather generous for the work that we'd put in. So almost forgetting our rake, we ran off with the money. Imagine that, I thought to myself. All you need to do is show up, work for a bit, and people actually give you money. We could do this every time and become rich. Of course, being kids, we lost interest pretty quickly, and we didn't do much work and didn't get rich. Now, the story is, of course, amusing from an adult perspective. We probably didn't actually do all that much work, and we certainly were not consistent. We thought that you could just show up, put in a nominal bit of effort, and get rewarded. It's normal to think that way as a child. There's a part of us that wants to have our efforts recognized, even if they were only a spur-of-the-moment thing. Sometimes we never outgrow that childish mentality. We're all reformed people here. We've had it drummed into us from childhood onwards that you are saved by grace and not by works. And we know that theologically. Yet the question that the catechism poses in, in Lord's Day 24 still resonates with us. Why can our good works not be our righteousness before God, or at least a little part of it? We get it that overall we're not quite good enough to pass, but surely trying, trying should count for something. We should get some points just for showing up, shouldn't we? The problem with this way of thinking is that there's only one way that you can quantify your works. There's only one way that you can then really measure them, and that is by comparing with the people around you. And you'll always find someone who is better than you are. You'll always find someone who is more spiritual, more godly, handles conflict better, loves better, suffers better, and so on. And even if you don't compare yourself with others, you still know in yourself that you can always do better. So this question that the catechism asks us is motivated by a deep restlessness. It comes from a place of confusion. For when you compare yourself to others, you're looking horizontally. You are disregarding God and His saving work. The more you disregard God, the more you will cling to your own works. The more you admire your works the more you will disregard your God. So, in the end, we need to have God back in central focus. We need to see Christ and all of His saving power. We need to see the Holy Spirit and His regeneration. How you regard your God determines how you regard your works. So, that's why this little question is central to a proper understanding of faith and true worship. The question that the Catechism asks us. That's why we're going to look at it more closely this afternoon. And I do so summarizing it under this theme that how you regard your God determines how you regard your works. And we'll see that if you disregard your God, you will admire your works. And if you admire your God, you will disregard your works. So our reading this afternoon from Galatians makes a startling claim. It says that all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. And you might wonder, well, how can that be? The law was supposed to bless us, was it not? And it was, if it is kept. Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy 27, verse 26 here. Deuteronomy 27 to 28 lays out a solemn ceremony in which the people of God were to divide into two groups. One half of the tribes were to stand on Mount Gerizim to pronounce the blessings 
and the other half of the tribes were to stand on Mount Ebal to pronounce the curse. And they were meant to do this to remind them to keep God, the, the, to remind them of the consequences of not keeping God's law in its entirety, the moral, ceremonial, and civil parts of it. Now you would think that that would mean that everybody would be cursed because the people of God regularly broke His law, and that is true. But the law also included provision for forgiveness, right? It included the provision for animal sacrifices for forgiveness. God had graciously provided this way for his people to be reconciled to him. The thing to remember is that it was not meant to be a permanent arrangement. Hebrews 10 verse 4 tells us about that. It says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. If it was good enough, then you would stop offering these animal sacrifices, but you keep on having to offer more animals because you keep on sinning. Now, that is not to say that the sins in the Old Testament were, were not forgiven. They, they were. You remember Psalm 32, Blessed is a man whose guilt the Lord does not hold against him. The sins committed under the Old Testament were genuinely forgiven, but they were not atoned for. That required a greater offering, which came into focus in the suffering servant songs of Isaiah 53. Paul makes that point in Romans 3 verse 25 when he says that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So all of these former sins for which there had been animal sacrifices, Paul is saying God had actually passed over these sins. They were forgiven, but they were not ultimately atoned for. That required the coming of a greater sacrifice. So the Old Testament law with its circumcisions, with its special feast days, all that stuff that was not meant as a permanent arrangement. It was simply meant to point them to God's grace, to God's promise until Christ came as a fulfillment of what had been promised, what had been promised through the law. So why did Paul write what he wrote in our text then? Well, he's writing to the Galatians, the Galatians lived in an area which today would form part of Turkey. These Galatians were new converts. They were new to the Christian faith, and at some point they were visited by itinerant Jewish Christians. And these Jewish Christians, these teachers, basically saw Christianity as an add-on to Judaism instead of as a completely new religion. So they said, you know, you need to keep the law of Moses, at minimum the distinctive parts, which would be the feast days, the Sabbath, and circumcision for men. So they essentially said, if you want to believe in Christ, that's fine, you can do that. We, Christ, you can believe in Christ, but you need to keep the law to be saved. Now bear in mind that this was not a misunderstanding. These people very clearly disregarded Christ. They disregarded his sufficiency. And they didn't realize that by disregarding Christ, they were actually disregarding the Father as well. They were disregarding the Father who sent him. In other words, they were not saved. And through their teaching, they were preventing those who followed them from attaining salvation as well. Remember what it says in 1 John 2 verse 23, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Now, you, you might think that this is not really relevant to us sitting here this afternoon. 
but it actually is. It's very relevant. We would not obviously say that you need to keep the Old Testament civil and ceremonial laws because those have been abolished in Christ. But we do believe that you should keep the moral law. We believe that you should keep the Ten Commandments. But here's the critical question. What is your mindset when you do that? How do you do that? There are those who would say, if you do not keep the Ten Commandments, you cannot be saved. Of course, we all sin. We all go to Christ for forgiveness. But if you don't keep the Ten Commandments, you cannot be saved. So if you put it that way, where does your salvation come from? At that point, it becomes justification by works. It sees something you do as necessary for salvation. You don't really believe that Christ is enough. And we might not see it that way, but that's what our reading suggests. Paul says in our reading that the blessing of Abraham was ultimately fulfilled through faith. Faith held on to what God promised in the Old Testament. Faith sees that fulfilled in Christ in the new. It does not go back to the old. Yeah, perhaps for some of us, we've never really thought our way through our relationship with the law. We feel that we must agree to this statement, if you don't keep the Ten Commandments, you cannot be saved. We feel that because we think if we don't agree with that, it must mean that you don't need to keep the Ten Commandments at all. But that is not what the Catechism is saying. Instead, it is urging us to think through the implications of what that kind of a statement means. It says these are the terms. The righteousness which can stand before God's judgment must be absolutely perfect and in complete agreement with the law of God. It's not like the leaf-raking example at the beginning where you get part credit for showing up and giving it a go. Instead, the terms are all or nothing. God demands perfection. That means you can never have an off day. You can never be slack. You can never call in sick. It is 100% perfection all of the time. That's what God's law demands. When you say that unless you can keep that when you say that unless you keep the 10 commandments you cannot be saved, that's what you're signing up for. Notice by the way the catechism doesn't just refer to our works, it refers to our best works. Even our best works are all imperfect and defiled by sin. And we we would agree to that when it comes to unbelievers. But this isn't talking about unbelievers. This is talking about us. It's our best works. Our best works are imperfect and defiled by sin. Even our best works are only what was due to God in the first place. As, as uh, the servants say in the parable of, of the servants in Luke 17, verse 10, they say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Any good that exists in us is good in the sense that it originates through Christ's work in our lives. But we are not yet perfected. You remember these powerful words from the Canons of Dort, chapter 5, article 1. In this life we are set free from the dominion and slavery of sin, but not from the flesh and body of sin. And part of the imperfection is reflected in how we think about these things. Why is it so hard for us to really get this? It is hard because we... we don't have a proper understanding of our works. We have an insufficient understanding of the holiness and the justice of God, and we have an insufficient understanding of our works. 
The simple fact of the matter is there is no way that it is possible for man to actually keep the law in its entirety. And people try anyway. And we look at that and we think it is virtuous. You know what Paul says about that? He says, if you try to live out of the works of the law, you're not virtuous. You're actually under a curse. You are actually under a curse. We might be inclined to think that someone who does more for God must be correspondingly more righteous or holy. But Paul says that's not the case. He says, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. The truly righteous are those who live out of faith in Christ. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who was hanged on a tree. Christ lived a life that was in complete agreement with the law of God. Consider how great he is. He was perfect not just for a few moments. He was perfect during his entire life on earth. He never had an off day. He never spoke rashly. Every word was well considered. Every thought was well considered. Nobody was able to convict him of sin. You imagine how great he is. Imagine how foreign his goodness must have seemed to the people around him. Imagine how the purity and the love of God shone through everything he said and did. Imagine we can't even begin. And he was so smart. He saw through everything all the time. He saw through people. He read them like an open book. He saw through every person who tried to let his or her works be their righteousness before God, or at least a part of it, and he showed them up for it. And they hated him for it. They hated him so much that they crucified him in the end. Yes, he was cursed, not because of his sin, for he had none, but because of ours. And the law was not canceled in his case. It was upheld completely from beginning to the bitter end. As the Apostle Peter put it, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Ultimately, the question that all of us need to answer for ourselves is where do I find eternal security? Where do I find eternal security? And it's only in the justice of God. Only in the justice of God, as it was manifested in his curse on the cross, only there can we feel secure. Only then can we know that our sins have been completely punished. Only then can we know that God's righteousness has been completely vindicated. Only then can we know that God is completely satisfied. Anything less than that will never be good enough. And you will not find salvation anywhere else. Therefore, you will not find security anywhere else either. A proper understanding of these matters is critical to a healthy faith life. How you regard your God determines how you regard your works. If you disregard your God, you will admire your works. If you admire your God, you will disregard your works. We'll pay attention to that in our second point. So how do you know that you are actually regarding God properly? It's an important question. How do you know that you are regarding God properly? When you see your flaws, but you are still confident of your reward. What is the reward 
Well, the reward is the presence of God himself. And we are rewarded because of Christ. When we place our faith in him, we're joined to him in faith, his righteousness is imputed to us. And that means even though we are not righteous by nature, God regards us as such. The technical term for that is justification. It means that our righteousness is completely anchored in the work of Christ, the finished work of Christ. And as a result, we are part of the family of God. We already have the presence of God in our life now and will enjoy it in perfection in the life to come. And there is security in that, in the work of Christ, because if you gain the reward by your works, you can also lose the reward by your works. But if you gain the reward by the righteousness of Christ, then it is yours forever. Because that righteousness is complete. It's finished. He earned it for us. In a sense, it is paid out now to us already. Your ongoing relationship with God also this afternoon is possible because of the completed work of Christ. Is this not an astounding thought, beloved brothers and sisters? You think about it. We already now, at this point, have the goodwill of God. There's nothing else that you can do for the whole rest of your life that will make God love you more than he already does at this very moment. Can you believe that? Can you actually believe that? Do you believe that? Do you hold on to that? You you are a creature, one of God's created beings, and a mere created being could never earn the presence of God. It is always God's favor and an incalculable privilege, and in Christ that is ours. So when you understand that, it also changes the way that you regard sin. Bear in mind that sin is transgressing God's law. Although Christ has fulfilled the law on our behalf, that does not make our sins any less offensive to God. And once you know the Lord, you will see that more clearly. If you really understand the privilege of knowing God and of belonging to Him, then you will grieve over sin. You will not become defensive. You will not shift blame. You will not point fingers. You will not minimize what happened. You will not generalize the details. Instead, you will take full ownership of everything that you have done in its entirety, and you will plead with God that he continue his transforming work in your life. You will want to see God honored in your life. That is really the characteristic of a mature Christian. What is a mature Christian? A mature Christian is somebody who wants to see God honored in his or her life. All of our lifestyle problems and all of our immaturity come from failure in this area. Let's make this personal. It is an open secret that in our free reformed community, we drink way too much. Habitual drunkenness seems to be a particularly large problem among young people, some young Christian men, but they're certainly not the only ones. And they already know that it's sin. They already understand that. So why are they not breaking with it? It's simply because how you regard your God determines how you regard your works. How you regard God has everything to do with whether or not you use alcohol responsibly. Someone who is drunk on a regular basis is someone with a low view of God. See, the real reason for drunkenness is not peer pressure. It goes much deeper than that. 
It's the result of bad theology. In fact, all sin is the result of bad theology. We don't see God accurately as our judge, as our Savior. We don't see ourselves accurately. We, see ourselves, we don't see ourselves as sinners instead of good people who sometimes do something bad. You're probably reasonably happy with yourself. You're trying your best. You see yourself as, as a good person who occasionally cuts loose every now and then, who you, makes mistakes. Hey, there's that generalizing language again. We make mistakes. No. You see yourself as a good person who just cuts loose every now and then. In other words, you admire your works. That's what it is. It's admiring your works. It's having too high of a view of yourself and not having a high enough view of God. You disregard God and you admire your works. And it's, it's funny how, how we can have that in our head, how we can on the one hand say the right thing, we can, do, we can know the right thing, we can say the right thing, we can have all of the right theology, and on the other hand, our life doesn't correspond accordingly. It's like there's a separation between the head and the heart. It's like this, this theological duality that exists in us. And sometimes we try to bridge the gap. Maybe you feel guilty sometimes and you resolve to change. Well, you know what that is. It's just trying to put up one, one good work against a bad one. It's trying to put up your work against your sin. And you know what it is? It's doomed for failure. It'll never work. You're trying to produce the fruits of sanctification in your life apart from justification. It will never work. You cannot overcome sin with good resolutions. There's no point in even trying. You might change your lifestyle for a while, but you have not overcome the core. You have not overcome the, the, the fundamental issue of your sin. You've just suppressed it. In a sense, someone like that is in a worse position than he or she was before because they still haven't dealt with the issue. And now it's hidden from sight. But if you're truly in Christ, you are justified. And when you really, truly understand what that means, you will be filled with admiration for the God who justifies the ungodly. You will turn to him daily in faith and repentance, and you will say like Moses, show me your glory. Let me know you as a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who does not visit our guilt upon us was gracious and compassionate. I want to see you in the glory of your forgiveness and your kindness. And that becomes the prayer of your life. And then he will regard you as righteous and you will produce fruits of thankfulness and you will keep the Ten Commandments. Not because you're afraid of not being saved, but because you have been saved and because you know that God is pleased with thankful obedience. And you will not take any credit for it. You won't even want to. You will not want to lay claim to the fruit because you'll realize this is not my fruit. This belongs to Christ. I may not take claim for it. That would be theft. It's his fruit. It doesn't belong to me. Only a complete salvation can give God his complete glory. He doesn't want us to have any guilt at all. So he forgives sinners completely. Anything less than that would not glorify him completely. So all of your guilt is taken away in Christ. 
You are already complete in Christ. There is nothing left to add. Look, it comes down to this. Either you are a slave or you're a child. There's no in-between. The more we understand, the closer we get to certainty. And then you will not be the child who rakes leaves in the front yard of a stranger. You will be the son or the daughter who belongs in the house. And you know what Jesus said about that. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but a son remains in it forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. Amen.